Earlier this year, I had the opportunity to sit a a three-week retreat. And that's the longest stretch I've been able to do this year. And I appreciated it when Greg said the other day that we could think about a couple days ago that we were starting a three-week retreat. And it was great. It was a lovely stretch of time to settle into practice. I hope you're settling in here in the first few days of your three-week retreat. When I'm on retreat, often some either snippet of poetry or phrase from the suttas can arise in my experience, much as Jaya was describing last night how our mind can uh, connect or resonate with texts or poems that we've been been exposed to. And it sometimes can seem like those can arise at just the right moment, almost like an instruction appearing in the mind. And on this three-week retreat that I did, there was a couple of phrases that not whole poems so much, but really just a few very succinct phrases that kept coming up. And each time they came up, it was like they would illuminate something in my experience, some way in which I was holding or uh, grasping after something and supporting a, a letting go So I thought I would share with you some of those reflections that came for me, partly on that three-week retreat that I sat in May. But this particular phrase that I'd like to explore with you um, is from a very brief sutta. I'll actually read most of the sutta to you tonight. So it's from this brief sutta, and... um, It just kept kind of resonating for me over and over on the retreat. The sutta that I'd like to share with you is, uh, it's the very first sutta in the collection of discourses known as the connected discourses of the Buddha, or the Samyutta Nikaya. Very first sutta you run into there. Very short succinct sutta and it's an it's a simile the buddha often taught in similes analogies and i've of late the last few years have really appreciated kind of diving into the similes because they are so evocative and this is a way in which this Uh, a particular piece of this um, simile arose for me as an image in the mind. And similes often evoke images for us. And so the the teaching power of similes, I think, is that they can connect to us. They can connect to us on many different levels. They can connect to us on... we We can connect to them on the intellectual level, on the meaning... And they can connect with us on a very evocative level 
through the imagery that's created in the simile. And this is mostly how this particular uh, simile came for me during this retreat. And so this simile is uh, of water. It's a water simile uh, of the flood. And I, I mentioned, I think, the flood last week in my, in my talk last week. I uh, talked about the simile of the raft a little bit and how we cross the flood by using the Eightfold Path, cross the flood. We build a raft out of what's around us and we cross the flood on the raft and then let go of that raft once we've crossed over. Well, in this simile, uh, there's a flood again, um, and the flood is um, understood to mean kind of the flood of our suffering, as it is in the simile of the raft. But in this particular image, the Buddha does not have a raft. It's like he's crossing... um, crossing a flood with just his, his body, walking across the flood. So the imagery of the flood, it's just a, that's a piece of the image. And it, you know, it resonates for us, this piece of the image. Unpacking the simile a little bit, looking at the various pieces of it. The flood of our suffering, the flood, the ways that we struggle. And that language even resonates for us. We talk sometimes about feeling like we're drowning in our emotions or moods or feeling like we're, uh, we can't get our head above water. And so this imagery speaks to us of a flood of struggle. And so in thinking about this flood and the imagery of a flood, it um, kind of seems like something, conditions in the world. You know, it's like we, we often in our experience of suffering connect to stuff happening. You know, stuff does happen in the world. People engage in certain ways that feel harmful or um, there are circumstances or conditions that feel out of our control. So, So things happen in the world that are a part of why or how We are suffering. And yet the pointing in the Buddhist teachings over and over again is it's not the stuff. It's not the stuff that we're, that is the real suffering. And that's really good news actually for us because if it were the stuff, it would be hopeless. We couldn't free, become free from from suffering. We can't we cannot control the conditions of the world in in the way that we'd like them to be. And yet fortunately in this teaching the Buddha says it's not necessary. It's not necessary to fix the world to be the way we'd like it to be. 
Instead, he points to this relationship in our mind. That how we are with that stuff that's happening is the crucial part of whether or not we suffer. If we are uh, reacting to it out of greed, aversion, confusion, delusion, we will be drowning. We will be struggling. We'll be feeling like we're swept away and like we can't get our head above water. And so this is the flood that's being referred to. Not the flood of the stuff happening in the world, but the flood in our minds of the greed, the aversion, the delusion. And the Buddha said in one very um, succinct definition of freedom, what he meant by freedom. He said the ending of greed, the ending of aversion, the ending of delusion. This is Nibbana. This is freedom. So this simile of crossing the flood, I think the first thing to uh, take in, having kind of understood a little bit about what this flood is, this flood of the, the flood of greed, aversion, delusion in our minds, that it is possible to cross the flood. So there's some hope. So the sutta begins, the, the Buddha is meditating, basically, in, uh, in a grove. And uh, it's said that a deva came to him and asked the Buddha, How, dear sir, did you cross the flood? The Buddha responded, By not halting, friend, and by not straining, I crossed the flood. But how is it, dear sir, that by not halting and by not straining you crossed the flood? When I came to a standstill, friend, I sank. But when I struggled, I got swept away. It is in this way, friend, that by not halting and by not straining, I crossed the flood. So there's a little bit more to the sutta, but this is the, the bulk of it. So it's a pretty succinct and brief teaching and yet it can evoke quite a bit for us. And so taking some time this evening to kind of unpack this simile with you. So one thing um, I like to do when I reflect on a sutta is remembering that it's a translation. I find other translations because... um, Different language lands for us in different ways. Certain uh, words have more of an evocative feel for us, resonate more for us, more fully for us. 
And so I, I look for different translations, which sometimes the different translations pull out different uh, subtleties of the meaning of the words. And, and uh, this, this translation that I read for you today was Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation. Um, and it is not the, the phrasing that resonates most with me. Um, there's a, another phrasing by a translator, Nyanananda, that uses the... Um, the words, how did you cross the flood? And the Buddha responds, by neither tarrying nor hurrying, I crossed the flood. That language for me is the language that came up during my retreat. And it was very evocative for me, I guess for this mind, for, for, for the way my own mind works, that language just maybe lands more with the way my mind functions in terms of clinging to things or you know, sticking to things, holding on, tarrying with something, spending excessive time with it, and hurrying, rushing past it. And so that language is very evocative for me. Another translation uh, from Tanasaro Bhikkhu, without staying in place and without pushing forward, I cross the flood. When I stayed in place, I sank. When I pushed forward, I got swept away. So, what this is describing to me is kind of some of what we've been saying in in some of the teachings um, here in the hall. This is a description of how the Buddha met the suffering. He's he's walking across the flood, not not hurrying, not straining, not tarrying, not hurrying. This imagery, um, the commentaries say this imagery is is meant to be a little paradoxical for the mind uh, because when we normally think about crossing a flooded stream, for example, what would we do? You know, we would, we would stop, we'd search, we'd look for a place to get a toehold, put our foot down there, make sure it's going to be stable, hold it there, and then maybe kind of quickly move the other foot to get to that spot, then, then do the same thing, look for another toehold. And so in, in real uh, crossing a flood, we would probably do exactly the opposite of what this teaching is telling us. And so uh, the, the, the commentaries say it's meant to kind of startle the mind a little bit. It's kind of like a koan. It's like, what does he mean then? By neither tarrying nor hurrying, I cross the flood. And so this, uh, again, to me, this speaks to the, the how we are on the path. It's really a kind of succinct description of how to be connected with experience. It's not so much about what we're experiencing, although the flood is understood to be the flood of suffering. And so that's what we're meeting in each moment. In each moment, neither tarrying nor hurrying, neither, neither stopping nor straining with this flood, just very calmly Moving on, moving on. And so this is a kind of 
more about how we meet experience. It's the attitude of mind that Sayadaw Utejaniya refers to. How are we in relationships in relationship to experience? And so this this neither tarrying nor hurrying kind of speaks to a balanced attitude of mind that in Sayadaw Utejaniya's words this kind of balance is being at ease with whatever arises moment after moment. Not reactive. In Saira Utejaniya's um, teachings, we often speak about um, checking in, in our experience, checking our relationship to experience. And we've encouraged you to do this at times. It's like, what's arising? And then how are we in relationship to it? If we're looking at a pain, for example, and there's aversion in the mind, that that aversion needs to be acknowledged. If there's a thought pattern going on and the mind is reactive to it, if we're not noticing the reactivity and we're trying to observe the thought, probably that reactivity is driving how we are being aware of the, of the thought. And so this checking into the relationship is an important piece uh, to kind of recognize whether the mind is balanced in relationship to what's happening. So being at ease with what's happening moment to moment, Sayadaw Utejaniya speaks about kind of checking in. Is there greed in the mind? Is there aversion in the mind? Is there delusion in the mind? the three kind of uh, roots of all of our suffering. And so this, uh, this attitude or balanced attitude is one where there is not um, greed, aversion, or delusion in the mind. And yet here in this, in this sutta, the Buddha is not using that language. He's using a different imagery around what it would mean to be on this path with a balanced mind. Neither tarrying nor hurrying across the flood. Another piece of this um, teaching that uh, I find inspiring, that helps me in in uh, reflecting on my own experience is the next phrase that uh, I'll use the tarrying and hurrying (laughs) since I like that. But how, dear sir, without tarrying, without hurrying, did you cross the flood? And the Buddha responds, well, friend, when I tarried, I sank. And when I hurried, I got swept away. So, without tarrying, without hurrying, I cross the flood. Now, this is the Buddha describing his own practice and acknowledging, when I tarried, I sank. The Buddha acknowledging, he sank, he, he, he drowned in suffering in his practice. The Buddha acknowledging, he got swept away in his own practice. 
So to me, this is somewhat inspiring because it's like, oh yes, I'm not alone when I'm drowning. (laughs) The Buddha drowned too. And he didn't give up. He looked at his mind. He kind of began to check in. What are the conditions here? What's going on? And from this teaching, what, what he's saying is that he understood that the tarrying and the hurrying were the cause of the drowning and the being swept away. It's not the flood that's the culprit. It's the tarrying or the hurrying. And so beginning to, to look, well, what's the possibility? What's the possibility in the practice? Is there some agency here? There's not, there's, there's not so much agency about the stuff that's happening in the world. Sometimes we can change things that are happening in the world. But where is there some, uh, some uh, capacity for this being to act? Maybe not about how other people are behaving towards us, but maybe about how we are in relationship to it. So agency in our practice, it, it, you know, he was looking at the conditions of the, of the experience and seeing that certain aspects of the experience were um, possible to uh, work with within this being and others, other parts of the experience weren't kind of something that would, could be changed. And so the, the looking at what, based on the conditions, what can we do? This is what we're doing in here. We're looking at the conditions and exploring how can we learn about the conditions that lead to suffering and how can we learn about the conditions that lead to freedom? Just looking in our experience. And we've talked a little bit about, about how this works. Mindfulness is really our mindfulness and wisdom paired together. Make this work for us. As we observe our experience get to know what's happening. And everything that's happening in this hall is conditions. The Dharma talks are conditions that plant seeds in your experience. What's arising in your experience is a piece of what you know and what you learn. The the kind of instructions to be present and aware are there and the mind has interest to act on them. None of this takes an entity, none of this takes a, a, a self to do this. Just the way that um, mindfulness and wisdom inform us. We've talked about how with, with mindfulness and wisdom, watching anger or frustration or confusion or greed, when we watch that with Mindfulness just isn't arising. This is what's arising in this moment. The mind learns something different about it. The vast difference, we we begin to understand the vast difference between being caught by a reactive mind state 
and being aware that a reactive mind state is arising. And in that difference, the mind learns something fundamentally different about that experience and how the mind is contributing to its own suffering. So it begins to, wisdom begins to support the mind letting go of it. And so mindfulness is a huge support for us in navigating these conditions. And so this is what I believe the Buddha was doing. He was looking at the conditions and seeing that this, this aspect of tarrying and hurrying was somehow participating in the drowning and the being swept away. So I think there's a lot of different ways tarrying and hurrying come up in practice. It seems to me as I, as I reflected on these words and the feeling of the experience, because that's what, in this particular retreat, this past May, the feeling of tarrying and the feeling of hurrying was what was being pointed to as this phrase arose in my mind. The phrase, by, by, by neither tarrying nor hurrying, I crossed the flood. Or sometimes it was the image, an image of the Buddha walking across the flood that arose in my mind, just very calmly, with that calm abiding, walking across this mass of, of, flood, of flooding water. And as I um, explored these these words, there was a kind of a clear felt sense of this quality of, of being stuck to something, kind of tarrying with something, or a, a felt sense of kind of skipping over, rushing past something. And these, these, these experiences seem to be a different way into exploring that balance of mind than reflecting on things as greed, aversion, or delusion. In some ways, it felt simpler. It's just, is the mind stuck to something, or is it rushing past something? The mind being stuck to something, that could be greed. It might be greed kind of having us kind of stick to something. Ooh, this is really pleasant. I think I'll hang out here for a little while. Tarry with something pleasant. Or it might be aversion. In my mind, at least, the, the aversive nature of this mind, when there's something unpleasant happening, I would get completely stuck to it, trying to figure out how to get rid of it. Tarrying with the, the unpleasant, the difficult, with aversion, the aversion sticking me to the experience with a tarrying quality. And so the tarrying could be greed, it could be aversion. The tarrying might be a kind of um, overemphasizing some experience, putting it under the microscope with a little bit of excessive investigation, maybe. Is that whew. That could be also from greed or aversion. Aversion, if it's, how do I figure this out? Can I pull this apart so I can get rid of it? 
So the one of the things that really began to be curious for me was was um, kind of getting a sense of familiarity with the quality in the experience of tarrying. And that that was a kind of a clue that the mind is a little bit, or a lot, out of balance. And likewise with the hurrying. Hurrying can be happening out of greed, rushing to get the next thing, grasping after pleasant, after pleasant, after pleasant. Or maybe it's connected with aversion, the the wanting to rush away from something that's unpleasant. And again, what is that quality of rushing or... One quality of mine that was maybe a little subtler in my experience was this experience of searching for something. As the mindfulness got um, more subtle and there was less kind of clear experience, the mind was like whirling about. Where is there something to land on? I want to find something to land on. Kind of a searching, a, a rushing So we might be able to get familiar with this, these qualities of tarrying and hurrying as a different way to explore what imbalance of mind means and lead us towards a balance of mind. This is, what, this is a lot of how we, we find our way to balance of mind. With Saira Utejaniya, he often says that we get to know a, a wise attitude, a wise relationship with experience by getting really familiar with unwise attitude. So we get familiar with the way our mind wants things to be a certain way. We get familiar with the way our mind uh, doesn't want things to be a certain way. And that very familiarity begins to help the mind to let go. It's that shift of of relationship rather than uh, buying into or observing experience through that greed or aversion. We are knowing it as a phenomenon, as an arising in the mind. And so I think the same thing holds true here, that by getting familiar with the experience of tarrying and hurrying, the mind begins to understand how to not tarry and how to not hurry. Tarrying and hurrying can have some other flavors, um, kind of just the qualities of um, the, the hindrances of sloth and torpor and restlessness seem to map very well onto these onto these qualities of tarrying and hurrying. Tarrying, the sinking into laziness or indulgence, just kind of spacing out, sinking into oblivion. Or restlessness, where the mind is just popping all over the place, very like that quality of, of hurrying. And so the exploration here, at least in my own 
practice, as, as, as this phrase arose in my mind, it's like, by neither tarrying nor hurrying, it was kind of like a little, a little reminder, oh, there's some, there's some subtle kind of, maybe even just very subtle kind of, uh, like landing on something and holding on to a concept or an idea. Just a little a feeling of that. That didn't, didn't even necessarily feel like greed or aversion. It had more just this quality of, kind of creating or holding on to something, a view. More in the realm of delusion, perhaps. But the quality of the sticking, a little bit of sticky to the, to the concept. But this uh, phrase kind of pointed to, oh, Maybe we don't have to keep sticking by neither tarrying nor hurrying. And so we, we explore the way to neither tarrying nor hurrying by being curious about tarrying and hurrying. What is that experience? We can know tarrying, sticking to something, with a mind that is neither tarrying nor hurrying. Oh, sticking to something is what's happening. That's what's happening. It's that shift from kind of believing or being bought into something, bought into the perspective of a view versus knowing, oh, this is a view that's arising. This is being believed right now. Another um, teaching feels resonant for me around this exploration of tarrying and hurrying, and it's from the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha's discourse on the four foundations of mindfulness. In that, in the third foundation, I don't think we've read that one so much. Maybe we have. And how does one abide contemplating the mind as the mind? Here one understands a mind affected by greed as a mind affected by greed, and a mind unaffected by greed as a mind unaffected by greed. One understands a mind affected by aversion as a mind affected by aversion, and a mind unaffected by aversion as a mind unaffected by aversion. Likewise with delusion. And so here are pointing to those three root states. And just simply knowing. Aware. Is the mind affected by greed or is the mind not affected by greed? The possibility of a balanced mind knowing, oh, this is a mind affected by greed. This is a mind unaffected by greed. And then continuing in this sutta, the the piece that feels very resonant with respect to this uh, tearing and hurrying is um, one understands a contracted mind as a contracted mind and a distracted mind as a distracted mind. And so he points to a different kind of 
way in to looking at what might be going on in the mind there. Contracted? Tarrying, perhaps? Or distracted? The mind kind of bouncing around? Hurrying, perhaps? Contracted mind pulling inward. The distracted mind jumping around. And again, this quality. There's almost an energetic experience that can be very simple to check into. Is it pulled in or bouncing around? And again, the in this teaching... In the Satipatthana Sutta, it says one understands a contracted mind is a contracted mind and a distracted mind is a distracted mind. Seeing that possibility of balance, no matter what, is is arising. Even contraction and distraction can be known. So tarrying and hurrying can be known with a mind that is neither tarrying nor hurrying the mind that is balanced, okay. It's just the tarrying is happening right now. So we don't have to, in this sutta, I love that it's, it's uh, you know, one understands a mind affected by greed is a mind affected by greed. It's not one understands a mind affected by greed and one does something to get rid of the greed. <laughs> it's just the understanding. It's pointing to the power of that mindfulness the power of that mindfulness and wisdom to support the mind understanding something about greed, which then will create conditions for learning to happen. And we have to acknowledge, and we've been talking about this, that it's not always possible for us to simply understand a mind affected by aversion is a mind affected by aversion, or a mind affected by greed is a mind affected by greed. This is a kind of the way that the, it, it is possible, actually, perhaps more often than we think it's possible. What happens often for us is, oh, there's greed arising in the mind. That means I'm not paying attention properly. We think that. Rather than, oh, there's greed arising in the mind. The mind can know this. That shift to just be, be able to be curious is more available for us, especially the further into retreat that we are, this deep into retreat, it's much more possible than than you might think. And so give yourself a chance to see, is it possible to neither tarry nor hurry around the fact that greed is arising? Just a moment of greed arising the mind neither sticking to it nor rushing past it. What happens with that kind of attitude of mind? And we sometimes can't do that, and so we we do need to use our skillful means at times to change the channel or to um, um, put down some experience and redirect the attention because there's, there's too much agitation in the mind or find ways to balance the mind. We all have been working. This, you all have your own tools at this point to help you balance the mind. 
And that's not, that's not a problem when that happens. For me, this image of neither tearing nor hurrying is really one of a lot of patience. But it's not a patience that is not active because it's not tearing. Maybe we have the idea of patience as being that quality of tearing, but it's not tearing. But it's not impatience, it's not a hurrying. It's meeting each moment of experience, this flood that the Buddha is crossing, the imagery of the flood, the Buddha crossing the flood. And in this case, as much as in the simile of the raft, there's this notion or this sense of a contact with the flood. The image for me is the Buddha's walking on water, contacting the flood. And and somehow, as this image evolved in my mind, as the mind kind of explored this phrase through the imagery, as the Buddha was crossing this flood, touching the flood, touching the the suffering. This is meeting, meeting experience. It's not, it's not somehow like floating above the flood. It's not this tearing and hurrying. is not about somehow growing wings and floating above the flood. We're in contact with it, learning about the flood as we are connecting. But in, my, in the image for me, it's the, it's the Buddha's walking across this flood. It's like instead of in hitting that piece of the flood and sinking underneath it, it's almost like somehow in that landing on that spot, it's almost like this, this little bit of, of stability grew in that little place where, where the foot lands. And then the next foot lands, and there's just a little place for there to be some kind of way for the, without tarrying, without sticking to it, and without hurrying past it, it's like almost like these magic uh, stepping stones appeared in my image of the Buddha crossing the flood. These magic stepping stones growing out of neither tarrying nor hurrying. Just that patient quality walking, walking across the flood. And then the image evolved further in my in my meditation. And that was just an image of the Buddha calmly walking. No flood in sight. And that, that one kind of startled the mind a little bit and the understanding that arose there with this imagery was um, kind of almost a shock. (laughs) It's like, oh, it's the tarrying and the hurrying 
that make the flood without the tarrying and the hurrying the flood vanishes The tarrying is what's drowning us. The hurrying is what's sweeping us away. It's not separate. And then as we neither tarry nor hurry, there's nothing to drown us or sweep us away. It's just moment after moment of experience. Experience. Another phrase arose during this retreat that felt connected in some way. And um, I wasn't completely clear on the connection, but this other phrase kept arising in my mind. And this evening as I was reflecting back on the retreat and and on the phrases that had been coming to my mind, I, I understood maybe something something different there so the other phrase that kept arising in my mind was one has no perplexity or doubt that what is arising is only dukkha arising and what is ceasing is only dukkha ceasing this to me this phrase is referring to dukkha in the sense of unreliable experience, dukkha having that, uh, that meaning at times. Unreliable. What is arising is only unreliable experience arising. And what is ceasing is only unreliable experience ceasing. And that word, the word uh, dukkha means unreliable. It also means suffering. And so this evening I kind of connected. It's like, oh, that flood, that flood of suffering. Maybe we could think of it also as just, it's the flood of experience. It's, it's the experience, everything we experience, nothing is in our experience is reliable. It's all impermanent. It's all coming and going. So whatever is arising is only impermanent, unreliable experience arising. Nothing in our experience has the quality of being stable, permanent, lasting, someplace where we could land or tarry. Nothing is permanent or reliable. Everything that's arising is only unreliable experience, impermanent experience arising. That's it. Everything that's ending Every experience that's ending is only unreliable experience ending. With this phrase or this reflection, my mind kind of, what's arising is only unreliable experience. Why tarry with it? It's just ending. What's ceasing is only unreliable experience ceasing. Why hurry to it? It's just unreliability arising and ceasing. Neither tarrying nor hurrying. 
is the way to relate to that unreliability without suffering happening. How did you, dear sir, cross the flood? Without tarrying, friend, and without hurrying did I cross the flood. But how did you, dear sir, without tarrying, without hurrying, cross the flood? When, friend, I tarried, then I sank. When I hurried, I I was swept away. And so, friend, untarrying, unhurrying, did I cross the flood. So there's time for walking and then the chanting at nine o'clock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.